part of me is like the 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 pace of the development and and just the things it can do that don't seem like they should be possible. It's hard to look at that and think like there isn't some sort of foundational change that happens here. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Drill to Detail podcast and I'm your host Mark Rittman. I've called it a very special episode because I'm joined by none other than Ben Stansel, CTO and founder at Mode and a very well-known blogger and commentator on the data and analytics industry. So welcome to the show Ben and it's great to have you join us. Thanks for having me, it's great to be here. Okay, so Ben, for, for, for the one or two people who don't know who you are, give us a quick introduction to yourself um, and your role as CTO and founder at Mode first of all. Sure. Um, so as you said, I'm Ben. I uh, am one of the founders of a company called Mode. Mode is a BI tool that's now been around for, for about 10 years. Um, my role at Mode has currently, my, my title currently is CTO. My role at Mode is is basically been bounce around and do a bunch of different things, uh, which is fairly typical for, for founders of startups. Um, so my, my background is largely as like a data analyst. That, that is that is sort of where I came into, into Mode. Um, it's the, the Things I was doing before mode, uh, basically working on data teams, helping answer questions for businesses, building reports and dashboards, all that kind of fun stuff. Um, at mode, I've I've done a number of different things. Uh, sometimes working as as a data person, sometimes uh, leading our product team, sometimes working on solutions engineering or support. Um, currently, most of my focus is on either kind of product strategy uh, or doing things externally with the community, mm-hmm. trying to understand kind of where the market's going, where mode fits into that. Uh, and that's where where the blog sort of uh, has its space as well. So so technically, the title is CTO. I'm not leading modes engineering teams. Uh, more of thinking about kind of the the bigger direction for what kind of technology we want to build, where we want to go, and those sorts of things. Okay, fantastic. So uh, a few episodes ago, we had uh, Pete Fishman on the show, mm-hmm. um, and he actually told some of the original story about. I suppose about how Mode was formed and, and, and Yammer and so on, but maybe just tell us a bit about um, how how your work at Yammer uh, led into uh, into Mode and maybe how you work with Pete as well. Yeah, for sure. So 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 Fish uh, Fish is kind of like the godfather of Mode in some ways. Um, so I I joined Yammer in 2012. Um, it was shortly before the acquisition by Microsoft. So Yammer was acquired by Microsoft. I joined Yammer's data team, uh, which was split into two halves. It was a data engineering team and an, and an analytics team that was analysts or data scientists or kind of whatever you want to call them uh, that were kind of responsible for helping people around the business answer questions. And so I was on that half. Um, and internally, we had built a couple tools that were basically designed to help the analysts distribute their work around the organization, uh, that, that we weren't trying to just build dashboards and reports, but we also weren't like the data scientists who are sitting in the corner doing hard math, building, you know, algorithms for for predicting products that people are going to buy. It was much more, we'd get a question from a product manager being like, hey, we have two, two different features. How are people using them? What do we learn from that? Um, and we needed ways to, to work technically. Uh, we were fairly technical folks that could write SQL and Python and things like that. We needed ways to work using those tools, but also be able to distribute that out to folks that were not necessarily technical. So they were in some cases, product managers or marketing managers or executives. Um, and so we actually had built an internal tool uh, that allowed us to do this. It was essentially a SQL editor in a browser with some charts on top. The analysts would write SQL in it. They would send links to, to folks with the charts explaining their answers. Um, and so that's really where Mode came from was we saw that product be really successful inside of Yammer. We saw it spread inside of Microsoft after this acquisition. Uh, and then we actually saw versions of this product pop up at other leading tech companies that were kind of building data teams in the same way, like Facebook, LinkedIn, Uber. Um, and so that's with me, my other two co-founders, uh, Derek Steer and Josh Ferguson, decided to say, hey, like, if if this is you know a product that is successful across these companies and is sort of a beginning of a market around how data teams are working, then then is there a product to build more generally here? And so uh, in a lot of ways, that's that's you know, the, the story behind Mode began with the team that Fish built. Uh, and, and the three of us all were on that team uh, and kind of saw the success of the internal tool and, and were inspired by that, basically. Okay. Okay. So people speak quite speak quite well of, uh, of Pete Fishman, or Fish as you call him. Um, mm-hmm. What was good about him? What was good about, what was good about him as a leader and um, the way he ran the data team? Have interest. Yeah. So, so Fish, Fish is one of the 
one of the best people in this industry, uh, both I think in terms of talent and just in terms of people. Um, and I think that's, th there are two things about fish that, that to me made him really, really good at what he did. Uh, one is he was, he was a, he was like a business focused analyst, basically like his entire motivation was how do we solve these problems to, to make the business better? He wasn't interested in, in technology. He wasn't interested in ego. Um, he was someone who was kind of at his core, curious about how the world worked uh, and wanted to, to figure things out and figure out ways to, to make businesses better because of that. And I think there was a lot of like motivation in that that drove you to think about, hey, how do we solve problems rather than sort of how do we politically position ourselves around the organization and things like that? Um, and he was very good at it. Like he's, he's someone who is as, as sort of a adept problem solver as I've ever met. And so, you know, he, he built teams that that tried to live up to that. We often didn't, but, but he was someone who could very much lead from the front about how he thought about business problems. The second thing is, is like, he's a genuinely really good guy. Like, honestly, and that, that sounds sort of cheesy, but that makes a big difference. The, the, the data industry can attract a lot of people who do this. Uh, there, there's a little bit of a, like a bedside manner problem among analysts where they want to come in and, and tell you how smart they are. And, you know, they've got the numbers and that sort of stuff. Um, and, and fish would never do that. Uh, fish was someone who, who was there for his people. Uh, he was there again to, to help the business, uh, sort of the, one of the most egoless guys I've ever worked with. Um, and so, yeah, he's, he's, he is, uh, sort of a true superstar to me in the space, both in terms of the talent that he has, but also just the quality of human being that he is. Fantastic. Fantastic. So what was so good about Yammer as well? Because Yammer, people speak well about Yammer as well. Um, was there anything about Yammer in particular that, that was a good, I suppose, I suppose, founding ground or, or, or kind of, you know, place to start with what you're doing now? What was good about Yammer? So I can mostly speak about it from like a, as a data org. Um, it, Yammer was one of the first like consumerization of IT uh, SaaS companies. So, so the approach that Yammer took for better or for worse, was basically to build Facebook for, for companies. Um, and, and this was before Facebook for work or whatever it's called, workplace or whatever it's now called existed. But the idea was like, hey, this kind of Facebook newsfeed thing works really well for Facebook and Twitter. Uh, what if we built it for collaborating at work? And what that did was the, the, the way they decided to build the product was, well, let's build it the same way Facebook does, which is oriented very much around user adoption, user oriented very much around trying to figure out how to make it viral. Let's like test features. Let's do all these sorts of sort of consumer product style development around the, the product rather than thinking about like, you know, how do we sell contracts and, and we measure ourselves entirely on ARR? Obviously, ARR mattered, but, but a big focus of it was just like, are people using the product? What is our daily engagement? Like daily engaged users was Yammer's North Star, not ARR growth or something like that. And so I think as a data organization, that that opened up a lot of doors for us because it meant that everybody was thinking about a metric that was more easily movable. Like everybody was thinking about how do we drive engagement in this product in the same way that Facebook is always thinking about daily active users or, or whatever. And so I think that that gave the data team a lot of influence because it wasn't just how do we close deals? It was you know, how do we increase the, the number of people using this product on any given day by 10%? And there's, you're sort of much closer to that problem uh, as a data organization than you are, you know, how do we close a contract that's going to take nine months to negotiate where most of that feels like it's, it's handled through giving the right sales pitches, having the right conversations with the right people across that account. You know, when you're driving engagement, it's, it's a much more sort of tactile problem for, for data folks. And so I think that gave us a lot of influence at an enterprise company that is, that was uh, not typical, certainly at the time, and still kind of isn't typical today. But, but it, it was a it was a breeding ground, I think, for a lot of ways of thinking um, for enterprise products that is a little bit uncommon. Okay, okay. <clears throat> and then obviously the other thing people know you for now is is your is your sort of your, your newsletter on Fridays. Um, and everything you said so far wouldn't necessarily lead into it someone being a blogger or a sort of like a an opinion person. So. What, what, what was the genesis of that and, and what drives you on with the kind of the articles you write and how does that fit with your role as, as, a, as a kind of a CTO at, at Mode, really? So, so the, the impetus behind the blog was like, it's all been sort of an accidental thing with, with there is no grand strategy here. Uh, so, so basically, when we, when we first started Mode, um, there were three of us. There was, there was me, Derek, and Josh, as I mentioned. Josh was, Josh was our founding engineer, basically. He, 
he was building the products. So like day one, Josh, we got to build a product, go build a product. Uh, Derek was our CEO. Uh, he was personable and well-liked, uh, which is good. Uh, you know, he was someone who could be the face of the company and Josh and I couldn't. Um, and so he went out and talked to investors and customers and things like that. You know, he was, he was suitable for that. Me not being technical and not being, you know, uh, someone you want to put in front of investors. I like basically had nothing to do. Um, and so the, the very first thing I did was I just started writing a blog. Uh, and at this point it wasn't, it wasn't kind of traditional thought leadership. It wasn't like five things to build a successful data team. It was things that I was interested in, which was just like analysis of public data. So the very first blog post on Node's blog was actually about Miley Cyrus. Um, it was kind of like 538 style stuff. I started doing that as a, as a way to, technically it was like a way to try to drive interest in the product. Partly it was just like, well, this is a thing we'll try and see what happens. Um, it ended up being something I enjoyed. It ended up being something that worked reasonably well. Uh, for a long time after after doing that, I ended up bouncing around these other different roles I mentioned. And then at some point, we ended up hiring, you know, sort of the appropriate experts in those roles and, and once again, out of a job. Uh, and so I was like, all right, well, I'll try the blog thing again. It has taken on sort of a different character from what it was now 10 years ago. Um, but that's really what kind of led to it. it was like, I'll try to try to see what happens here. And and again, the the, the overall like, strategy behind it at this point is is non-existent it is i write one this week and then the strategy is well i guess i'll do it again next week um but but for me it's like kind of thinking out loud it's i've been thinking about this space for a long time what's fun to me is hopefully fun to other people and and so if i try to talk about the things that i'm interested in then the hope is that other people will find it interesting but there's not there's not really any giant narrative this thing is all rolling up to i have i have no strategy for what happens on day two here yeah Excellent, excellent. So, there's a few, in terms of topics for this for this episode, there's three things I want to talk to you about. Really, one is one is obviously about mode, um, and it's particularly topical now because of the recent announcement that you made uh, during uh, Snowflake Summit. Um, then also, there's two topics that I've really picked up on from your um, from your from your newsletters, but also things that I'm interested in. Um, so, it's the economics of the modern data stack industry, and finally, talk about LLMs and AI and, and where you see that going because that is the kind of topic sort of the day at the moment really but but let, let's kind of start off with mode really and and so you you gave a kind of a um a positive history earlier on of mode um but the question i have really is maybe at the start what led you to build something rather than pick one of the tools that was out there at the time um so why why build rather than buy for you at the start so there wasn't really a product that solved the problem we were trying to solve i like we were in this in-between spot where it wasn't traditional BI. There, there were BI tools out there. Tableau was was established at that point. It wasn't as big as it is today, but Tableau was there. Um, there were the micro strategies and the business objects and, and things like that that were kind of traditional BI tools. Um, and then there were kind of data science tools. There were things like RStudio or there were Jupyter Notebook or, or you know, uh, tools that were very much kind of technical tools meant for, for technical folks. The problem was they were both kind of too far on, on either end of that spectrum where we weren't, we as a data team didn't want to use a BI tool that was just designed for basic reporting because we needed something that was kind of closer to the metal. We needed something where we could write custom queries. We could answer these questions that, that weren't what's happening, but like help us figure out why it's happening. We were doing all of this kind of investigative work that, that required digging a lot further than you could get by kind of building a simple dashboard. But the other side of that, like a like, we couldn't send the CEO of Yammer uh, a, an R Markdown file. Like it couldn't be like, here's our analysis. It's just open up a Jupyter notebook and run it. Like like that that didn't work either. And so we needed something that allowed that kind of had two sides. It allowed us as technical folks to do the work we needed to do, but allowed the kind of non technical consumers to have an easy way to look at it, to collaborate around it, and things like that. And there just wasn't really much product there that that would help us do this. So we ended up building a thing. Now, there's also, to be entirely honest, like a bit of a bias in Silicon Valley. You got a bunch of engineers there, you know, going to be inclined to say like, I can build a better version of this. And and we had a team that, that in their case, wanted to do that and, and actually could. Um, and so I think that's, that's really where I, we went that direction instead of buying something. We just couldn't, couldn't find anything that actually solved that need. Okay. Okay. And then you spun, the product was spun out then to become mode. Um, and I suppose I was going to ask you what kind of user persona is it aimed at, but I guess it was aimed at people like you. 
So maybe product-led growth or, or people who were more technical but wanted a bit more than just kind of, I suppose, just writing SQL themselves. I mean, did you have a, a persona in mind and, and did you have a kind of side, an idea about the size of the market you were going for at the time? So we did. Um, our persona at the time was there were sort of two ways. There was a sort of the persona that we imagined we would sell to and the persona we probably did sell to. The persona we sold to was was basically data teams that looked like ours. At the time when we first started it, there weren't a ton of those. There were some, and certainly in Silicon Valley, they were becoming increasingly popular. Um, these were, again, not BI teams and not data science teams in the sense of they're trying to win Kaggle competitions, but data teams that are you know, trying to solve business problems. Um, tended to be somewhat technical. Uh, they were all over the place in Silicon Valley. They were starting to pop up in media companies and healthcare companies and fintech companies. Um, and so we were selling mostly to those folks. The, the audience that we pitched, you know, we have old pitch decks from 10 years ago now, uh, was like anybody who writes SQL. Um, and that to some extent was true that, that, and that, that was a very big market then it's still a very big market, but it's slightly more nuanced than that. When you're, you're really solving the problem for people who aren't just writing SQL, but people who are these kind of problem solvers who try to solve problems, you know, again, using data answering questions more flexibly. Speed matters a lot. It's not just report builders, but but again, people who are kind of partners to the business to help them. them solve problems. Okay. So how did, how did you see um, mode in say relation to look at the obvious, the obvious other player in, in, in this market or certainly the, 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 the very well known player in this market? Yeah, it was so, so we actually, in some ways the two tools were very complementary. We competed and, and, you know, in for most of modes, sort of history, there were three, we always would have like two or three competitors that were the folks we'd run into. Now that set evolved over time, but Looker has been one of the most consistent ones there. But that said, in a lot of ways, the the, the competition with Looker wasn't so much a direct one. It was more of what style do you want to favor? So Looker, Looker is shaped like a traditional BI tool in that you build a data model, you get reports on top, you know, the way that that all works is slightly more modern. Um, you're not using building a data model with a drag and drop thing. You're building it with with code and kind of a YAML-like interface like the LookML. Um, it runs in the cloud. It runs on top of cloud data warehouses. It pushes compute down. It doesn't have like a not doing like data ingestion. So it's, it's architected in a way that is kind of for what I would say is the modern data stack, which is a phase we may be kind of getting out of now. But it was architected very much for that world. But it was traditional BI. It was It was... The role of the product is to build reporting for the rest of the business. And it's like very governance focused. It's very, you know, it, it's a sandbox for, for non-technical people to explore data, not an environment for analysts to answer questions outside of that sandbox. Like to them, writing SQL was kind of a backdoor. They had this SQL runner thing, but they always saw it as like an escape hatch for when the LookML didn't work, but it wasn't really where you were supposed to be. Our approach was there's a lot of questions that you don't actually anticipate that you can't sort of pre-model that you need something that's flexible, that's faster, that's those sorts of things. And so really the competition with Looker wasn't so much, these are two of the exact same products, which feature set do you prefer? It was more, do you favor the heavily governed sort of tightly controlled traditional BI data model, or do you favor the like fast, flexible, write a SQL query, build a dashboard really quickly kind of approach to it. And so when we won against Looker, it was when teams that favored our model. When we lost to Looker, it was when teams favored their model. It wasn't so much of a like, hey, these are feature for feature thing. Which one, you know, do you like the look and feel of better? They tended to just solve kind of different philosophical approaches to the way to deliver BI to, to customers. Okay. Okay. So I'm just just considering here that be, there might be some people on this, on this, listening to this who haven't really used mode or, or are tr- struggling to kind of in a way or are trying to picture it in their mind. And, and I'm, in particular, the fact that you've got the Python uh, side to mode as well. Um, maybe just kind of just paint a picture of what using mode is like. And, and, and also, how does Python come into it? Sure. So, so basically, the, the, the very simple version of mode is it's a SQL editor, uh, again, with some charts on top. Um, basically, what, what you can – so it's a product with two sides. So there is, there is like a technical editing experience, and then there's a presentation experience. The way it essentially works is you connect it to databases. It sits on top of warehouses like Snowflake or BigQuery or Redshift or SQL Server or whatever. Analysts or technical folks can come in. You have a kind of IDE for 
running queries against that data, for taking the results of those queries, loading them into Python environments. Um, there's a very flexible and, and powerful visualization engine that sits on top of it that allows you to do a lot of the kinds of things you could do in something like Tableau. Um, and then you can take the results of all of those things and package them up into a nice dashboard that you can arrange kind of in the way that you would expect of dragging in little cells and things like that. So the idea is if you want to say quickly create a dashboard as an analyst, you could open it up, you can run a couple of SQL queries, you can put a handful of charts on top of those SQL queries. Uh, and then you have a URL you can share with someone that they can always get back to that result. They can refresh it on a click, they can schedule it, have it delivered to them, that kind of stuff. Um, and then if they, the, the, the non-technical person wants to come in and explore it, they get kind of a, again, a Tableau-like interface to come in and, and drag and drop their way to, to explore and get it further, doing drill downs and additional filters and all those different things. So, so the, the idea is that there are a lot of dashboards that people ask for. If you are a business user, say, hey, like, can I get, can I get a new report on the number of signups that we've gotten from this marketing campaign? The way that traditionally would work is analysts would come in, they'd write some SQL query, they'd take the results, they'd stick them in Excel, they'd make a chart, they'd copy the chart into an email, they'd send an email, and, and that's it. We basically try to streamline that in one place where you can do all of that, where it's like write the query in mode, put the chart in mode, send the URL to the person, um, and then they have it all packaged together. When they want to run it or drill into it, they have it kind of live against the database. Again, it is it is similar in structure then to, to a BI tool where you might build that in BI, in a BI tool, that kind of dashboard in a BI tool, but in most BI tools, you have to go in and like update an underlying data model to get there. There is, you know, in Looker's case, editing the look ML, um, which again is is more of a, it's like it is sturdy and there's a lot of governance in that, but it's also slower where if you don't have that data model, then there's a lot of work to do to go in and kind of update that, that underlying structure. Um, and so for us, it was more of, can we really quickly enable analysts once they get those questions to answer them kind of by querying the data directly, by building uh, data products on top of that directly. Um, and, it, and it really favored this kind of speed and flexibility approach, uh, again, over one that was that was tied down to a data model. Now, again, obviously, data models also bring some some structure and some governance that is valuable. Uh, so that's that's again where the, the philosophical approach uh, between the two products is is different. Okay. Okay. So, so my, originally when I planned out this episode with you, my next question was going to be a polite dance around the kind of topic really of, of, I suppose, why was mode in my mind, like say one of the indie bands from my youth, like say sort of I don't know, talking heads or, or, or the pixies or whatever, where it kind of had a lot of influence and was very well respected, but wasn't particularly kind of, um, I suppose the biggest in the market really, or certainly wasn't sort of maybe as talked about now as it was maybe a couple of years ago. Um, but then, um, but then there was the announcement uh, during Soflake Summit of um, of mode being acquired by ThoughtSpot, which was kind of very interesting um, because it certainly put you back in the headlines, and it certainly started to kind of like I don't know put you back into the centre of things. So maybe just tell us a bit about um, what that acquisition, um, but also what was the what was the lead up to it? What was the rationale for it really? Um, and um, and I suppose also. Lead, will lead on to where does mode fit into the thought spot sort of story but i suppose why did you start talking to them and what was the lead up to this yeah so, so they kind of answered all of that in in one the, the arc of that is all kind of the same so so to your to your point of like mode sort of had presence and then faded i think i think a lot of that is kind of just like silicon valley hype cycle to be honest that that you know, the, the people care about the next new thing, not necessarily the biggest thing. Um, and so if you look at Mo's sort of revenue growth, uh, it's a it's a chart that doesn't have like big, it, it hasn't like flatlined, it doesn't have big dips. It's basically a chart that's kind of been steadying on up. And so I think that the the mind share of Mode is one that back when we were early, it was kind of, oh, this novel new thing of SQL and Python all together. Um, and, you know, over the course of that, people get the company continues to grow, but people find the next the next new thing. And so the the companies in the headlines aren't always the biggest. I think actually Looker in some cases is a good example of this. <laughs> um, Looker as a business has gotten very big, uh, but in terms of mindshare, Looker is a thing that that is not nearly what it was in 2018, 2019. But as a business, it's probably five or six times bigger than it was then. And so I think part of that is just you know that that people care about the new new thing in, in Silicon Valley and not not necessarily the, the big one for us. And so, so what does that mean for us? And like, why do we end up with ThoughtSpot? Basically for mode, we focused on these data teams. We saw ourselves as, as 
either complementary to existing BI tools or in cases when companies were very focused on doing BI the way that we wanted to do it, which was this kind of fast and flexible thing driven by data teams. We could be the entire BI solution. But oftentimes, uh, especially at large companies that have multiple tools, they would have kind of a reporting tool for reporting. And then mode was the thing where they would deliver uh, the kind of ad hoc analysis, the strategic work, the kinds of things that were the questions that needed to get answered outside of the BI tool. That that market of like selling exclusively to data teams isn't huge. Like it is not, it's it's a good market. It's a, they're valuable customers. But in order to build a really, really big business in this space, you get pulled into being BI. And I've, I've like said this a number of times in the blog, basically, that there's a whole bunch of companies that start off saying they're not BI tools that like we sell embedded analytics, we sell to data teams, we sell now AI chatbots. These things aren't BI. They're something different and special and more narrow and more focused. It all sort of blends. And, and ultimately, at the end of the day, everybody gets pulled into being like, well, can you build some dashboards? Can you build some self-serve reporting? Can you sell to business users? That's what customers are going to want. And it's where the money is. And to your question about economics that we'll get to, if you're chasing you know, huge Silicon Valley VC-backed outcomes, you're going to find yourself slowly drifting towards building a traditional BI tool. And so, so our arc was, okay, well, we built this thing for analysts. Analysts really like it. We found ourselves slowly drifting towards a BI, building a BI tool. And I think to your point of like, where was mode in the market? I think a lot of it was we were building a traditional BI tool and ain't nobody excited about that. Like we can sell it and make money, but it's not the thing that, that gets TechCrunch headlines as, you know, another company builds BI. We were building from that direction. So we were basically building a thing that we were, it was popular with analysts. We were starting to build more and more kind of business user, self-serve type of functionality. We really expanded our visualization capabilities, things like that. ThoughtSpot was a company that very much started with that world. They, they are, were very focused on the business users. They've done a great job of building a very flexible self-serve tool. Um, it's something that's loved by those folks. It is not a technical tool. Um, ThoughtSpot is a tool that does not have a terribly technical side to it. Uh, data teams often would find ways to say like, great, we like ThoughtSpot for our business users, but we're not going to work in it to answer our questions because it's just not built for that. And so they found themselves kind of drifting in our direction of, hey, we got to solve this problem for like, how do we build a BI product that is also loved by data teams? We were a data team product that we we're starting to build a BI tool that needed to be loved by business users. And so they actually approached us uh, because they were starting to think about what is it they can do to to you know, build a more kind of complete end-to-end -end solution that, that also is appealing to data teams. They knew that we were popular with those. They came to us and said, hey, this is kind of the direction we're going. We realized we were basically going in the same direction as them. And so it's like, if we're both kind of trying to build the same product from opposite sides and we have these, these assets that are sort of completing the vision for each of us if they were combined together, uh, we realized it made a lot of sense to, to bring those two together. And so that's, that's ultimately where it came from was, we were the data tool that was slowly building towards BI. They were BI that was slowly building towards being a data tool. And it was like, we could really shortcut a lot of this by, by putting these things under one. Okay, interesting. So, so, and that leads on, I think, to the next topic, really, which is about the, the modern data stack industry in general. Okay, so, so you've, you've certainly been there right from the start, really, with this. Um, and, um, I, I mean, just, just tell us, tell us uh, I suppose, give me a, a potty to kind of couple of minute, I suppose, history of the modern data stack industry and your your position in it, and I suppose um, to where we are now. Just to, in, if you could, if you could sort of summarize it in in a, in a kind of couple of minutes, really. Um, you know, where's it gone? Where's it come from? And where's it where's it got to? You think at the moment? So my view of the modern data stack is people have this question like, what is the modern data stack? Um, my view of it is basically uh, it's an era. It is like we had the era of big data prior to it, which was basically Hadoop and sort of that ecosystem and the idea of sort of NoSQL databases, we're moving past Oracle and we're going to dump everything into, you know, Impala or whatever. And, and that was kind of quote unquote big data. Now it's like, what products are a part of that? I don't know. It's like, it doesn't really matter. The point is there's a philosophy to it and an idea of how, how these things will, will change the way people think about data. To me, the modern data stack is essentially like a philosophical uh, the, the sort of philosophical child to the era of big data. It was, oh, actually, instead of doing everything in Hadoop and things like that, we could just put stuff in cloud data warehouses. We're going to focus back mostly on things in SQL. Uh, it's going to be cloud-based data tools. Um, it's a lot of sort of 
end user facing products. It's not, it's not Oracle and, and Microsoft and sort of big, you know, enterprise sales in that way. It's much more kind of product led growth style companies. So the, the kind of joke that I have is I think like the modern data stack, like what are the tools in the modern data stack? They're basically data tools that launched on product hunt. Um, because I think that's like one, the era that it basically aligns with Two, they are companies that tended to be sort of end user facing Silicon Valley startups. Um, like Oracle has a cloud data warehouse, but I would not consider it a part of modern data stack kind of because it doesn't really fit that philosophy. Um, and so, so I think like that's basically the arc of it. And, and now I think we're sort of starting to get past that a little bit where, where we're going to enter the next phase of all this stuff, which is AI, which we can talk about in a minute. To me, Mode's role in this is it was very early in this phase, kind of pre even the term. It fits into the category, though, because it was a cloud-based tool. It was a thing that was focused on working with cloud data warehouses. Uh, it was a SQL-based tool. It was selling to data teams that were kind of these like business-focused data teams, not, again, traditional data science teams. Um, in a lot of respects, Mode was early in that, that I think that that the timing of when we started Mode was was two or three years prior to like when the market really got going for this stuff that the first customers we had, and especially the first investors we talked to, they were like, who are these analysts you sell to? Like, does anybody write SQL anymore? It was all kind of some skepticism because we're still in this like big data world. I think by 2016, 2017, we had moved pretty well into the modern data stack world where things like Fivetran were very popular. DBT was starting to emerge. Everybody was moving to Redshift and then Snowflake. People were much more comfortable with data in the cloud. Like all of those things, that transition happened probably the 2015 to 2019. And so Mode preceded that a little bit, but I think was very much in that, in that set of, again, companies that were starting to think about data as, as a very SQL-based thing, as a cloud-based thing, as a thing that was designed to sort of drive business decisions and those sorts of things, as opposed to kind of the the big data, we're going to predict the future with massive amounts of data hype that was in like The Economist in 2012. Okay. How much do you think the, the modern data stack was driven by venture capital and venture capital funding? In, in, in as much as, I suppose, the, the companies that were consuming it, the companies that were funding it, and how it was paid for. I mean, how much was VCs and VC funding a critical part of the MDS, do you think? I, I think... I think in the second half, a lot. In the first half, not nearly as much. So there was this phase to me of the, you could kind of, I guess, break like the modern data stack era if you wanted to. This is like getting really sort of in the weeds, but like in the three rough phases to me, there's this kind of like proto phase of it, which was when the early tools in the space started to pop up. So this was Mode and Looker and Periscope and Chartio and Fivetran and Stitch and those sorts of folks. There, I don't think actually VC money drove a lot of that. There, I think a lot of it was like piggybacking up on, on Redshift, really, and just like, oh, this cloud data thing is a thing. We need some basic tools for it. Like, Mode was not a, you know, Mode is in its course of its history raised like $80 million. That is, by today's standards, a relatively paltry sum compared to what a lot of data tools have raised. You know, Looker did not raise some astronomical amount of money. Um, these, these were things that were like, yes, they were VC backed, but it wasn't, it wasn't like crazy hype. I think a lot of this was the beginnings of a new market and, and again, piggybacking on top of like some transition away from legacy databases into the redshifts of the world. The second phase I would say was pre pandemic. And this is where things started to really get hot with like DBT and, and all those things. I think that was to some extent VC driven. Um, though again, part of that was just like People were starting to really move workloads into the cloud. Snowflake was getting really popular. Um, this was pre-Snowflake pre IPO. And I think that was like VCs were starting to, to froth it up some, but it was still a lot of like exploratory. There is real value here. We're not exactly sure how to find it yet. We're starting to build real products. The, the post-pandemic phase, the, the 20, late 20, basically post-Snowflake IPO, so 2020 to 20. 22, I think is entirely VC driven. That was that was like extremely frothy. That was where they were like new data startups all the time. They were raising, this was like when the default term sheet was 20 million bucks on a hundred million dollars for an A with like a pitch deck and no product. Like th this was this was a phase, I think, where the modern data stack was the hype. And so a ton of companies got started 
building very narrow prop like solutions to problems that are real but are pretty small. And so I think that was all like VC dollar driven. And there will be real things that come out of it, but but that was where we started to see just the astronomical rounds and the you know the the billion dollar valuations on on companies with barely any revenue and and that I think is a, a world of a, a bygone era at this point. Yeah, interesting. I mean, you think about, um, I suppose, I think there was, there was some blogs that you wrote a while ago. Uh, this is how Fivetran fails. This is how DBT Labs fell. And, and, and they were kind of interesting, you know, because they were probably the first time that people started to sort of question, I suppose, the economics behind it, or at least maybe the valuations behind it and what that meant for, for people. I mean, I've had, I've had um, you know, Tristan on the show a few times, really, and talking about, you know, I suppose, the funding they've raised at DBT Labs. And you know, his rationale was, well, let's raise it while we can, because that then secures the future of the sort of the, the platform and the product going forward. But it does also introduce its own complications. You know, if you've got staff who are now, um, who maybe their options are not worth as much as they were, and, and it means you can't raise money, you can't get good staff. I mean, what do you think the effect of maybe the dry up of funding is going to be? Um, and these companies that do have these big valuations, um, where do you think they go from there, really? Is it a problem, do you think, or is it, is it not a problem? I mean, what do you think on that? It's, it's some of both. I like Tristan's, Tristan's perspective, I think, is, is largely right, which is if, if the money's free, take it. You know, like if, if, you can, if you can put several hundred million dollars into your bank account and, and you have that cushion to ride out a potential downturn, which obviously we ran into, or, or, you know, you can, you can fund yourself for years on top of free money, like by all means, go get the free money. And so like, I, I, I certainly don't think that that is, that is a bad idea. I think the thing that is dangerous is if you go out and get the free money and then you raise $300 million and you spend a hundred a year and, and you're not seeing the growth to get there, that's where I think you find yourself in, in a real problem. And so I think like, there, there will be to me different results here that that these companies have. That there are some, there are some that raised at huge valuations on on not a whole lot of revenue, and I think those are ones that that are going to find themselves in a real bind where they've got to either really really scale back, like they simply can't grow into that with the with the in two or three years. Like you're not going to get if you're if you're at ten million dollars in revenue and your valuation is one and a half billion dollars in this market, you're not going to go ten to 150 in two years. Like that's just not going to happen. And so you're going to have to, something's going to have to give there, whether or not that's really slowing down growth and, and scaling back what you're spending, or if it's, if it's selling or whatever. Um, but a lot of these companies also, you know, they, they raise money and they haven't spent it that much. And I think in that case, you're mostly fine. Like you have a little bit of an issue with options kind of being underwater or whatever. You can, you can adjust that. You can, you know, like, I think that the the black mark of a down round uh, may start to go away some where everybody kind of takes it. It's seen as is the prudent thing to do is to kind of mark it down because that's what's realistic. And again, if you can go out and raise three hundred million dollars, not spend that much of it and then mark yourself down your valuation down by 60 percent. Like, is that a bad thing? No, that's probably smart. Like, good for you. You probably did it right. So I, I think like in some ways, the the optics of that stop looking as bad. Um and, and you know, companies companies just sort of change their their burn profile to fit the, the times, but they also know have a lot of money in the bank. The, the ones I do think that are that are problematic are are if you're there, there's this metric uh, that David Sachs, actually the the CEO of Yammer, has talked about some in his post Yammer day called, called a burn ratio, which is essentially how much money you spend to how much new revenue you add. And I think I think that's a pretty good proxy for like the companies that will find themselves in trouble versus not. Or again, if you're you're spending a hundred million dollars to add ten million dollars in ARR, that's a that's a math problem that does not add up. If you're spending twenty million dollars to add ten million dollars in ARR and you've got three hundred million dollars in the bank, okay, like fine, it, it, you can do that for a long time and and build a really big business. It may not be the business you thought you were going to build two years ago, but like that's not the point. The point is to build something lasting and sustainable. And I think if you've got a bunch of money in the bank, easier to do that than if you don't. Okay, so do, do you, I mean, you talked about um, five trend in one of your blogs and, and, and DBC Labs, as I said. I mean, do you, do you foresee the way this is going to go that will be those, those businesses hoover up the smaller kind of data, data products? Or do you think, um, what do you th- where do you think they'll go? Do you think it'll be consolidation? Do you think they'll be have zombie companies? Do you think that, wh- where do you think the, if you, in a couple of years' time, these products and companies will be? 
So I, it kind of depends on the product. I think there will obviously be some different results here. My, my kind of rough heuristic for that is it's less about the finances of the company probably and more about the problem that you're trying to solve. So, so take, take something like, I mean, like data catalogs. I, I'm, I'm like generally a skeptic of data catalogs. Um, roughly, I think there will be some stuff that comes out of that that's pretty good. But like that's a fairly new category. Like they've been around in some form for another for a while. It's a fairly new category that the entire idea of building a data catalog that could be a three or four billion dollar business is unproven. Like I don't know that you could or, or data observability. Data observability may be a better thing. Where like there are a handful of data observability companies, things like Monte Carlo and Metaplane and Big Eye. The total number of data observability customers in the world is probably south of a thousand. Like those folks probably do not have a thousand customers across the entire set. Can you build a multi-billion dollar business on top of data observability? Maybe, I don't know, but like it is certainly an unproven product space that, that the entire category could itself be hype from the modern data stack. We're like, that may just not be a sustainable category period to build a super huge business. We don't know. It may be huge, but it's like you're trying to build a whole new category there that got very frothed up in a couple of years. And so part of the challenge with, with building one of those companies is you've got to prove that the market exists at all. I think in, in like BI's case, now obviously I have some bias here, uh, but like in ThoughtSpot's case, ThoughtSpot's also obviously a company that, that raised a lot of money in, in a really strong market and, and will have to kind of continue to, to, you know, the market is now different for, for ThoughtSpot as it was for everybody else. However, ThoughtSpot is selling BI. And so that is a market that exists. Nobody's going to question whether or not BI tools can grow into multi-billion dollar valuation companies because they've been around for a long time as multi-billion dollar companies. Like you can, you can be a multi-billion dollar BI tool. It's been proven multiple times over. And so I think in that case, yes, there's sort of work to be done in all these companies to, to kind of get back to the valuations and things like that, that, you know, they would have had in frothy times, but it's a proven market and, and it's more about execution and going out and building a great product and selling it. And I think that's a very doable thing. And again, and mode and thought spots case, something that I'm, I'm very optimistic about our ability to do in cases like data observability or these other, these categories that are sort of new, you've got to both build the product and prove the market. And I think that's a harder Okay. Okay. I suppose the uh, the other risk these businesses have is is, is disruption from something completely new. Um, and I suppose uh, I suppose AI and large language models have the potential, possibly, to be that disruption um, that will kind of change the way we do BI and so on. I mean, maybe just to start off with this this final section, maybe I get a, a little potted summary of 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 why you think LLMs and AI are interesting and. And I suppose also why these could potentially be a disruptive element really in the market compared to say just another BI tool coming along. So my, I mean, I have a few different thoughts on this. I generally, I think they are, they can do crazy stuff. I, the, my short answer is how they're disruptive is like it, it, it can do wild things that don't seem like it should be possible. Like I think, I think it is, I, I, went, I went through this phase uh, in early COVID where I was basically two weeks behind everything that was happening, where it was like, when it first started, I'm like, this will be a few weeks. And then it's a few weeks later, it's like, no, this is going to be a few months. And a few months later, like, this is going to be forever. And like, I kind of was never caught up to, to the pace that the thing was moving. I think AI, I've, I've kind of had the same, the same pattern with AI, where I would be like, ah, this thing is like when ChatGPT came out, it's like, this thing is cool, but it can't do this and then three weeks later it's like oh wait it actually somebody figured out it can do that you know and so part of me is like the 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 pace of the development and and just the things it can do that don't seem like they should be possible it's hard to look at that and think like there isn't some sort of foundational change that happens here i you know i don't have a there's no sort of grand theory behind that it's just like look at the thing and you're like wow it, you know it, this is this is a very novel thing that that seems like you could figure out something to do with this that would be very disruptive. I, it also is, is to me kind of a fundamentally different type of technology. It's, it's weirdly creative. It can do things that like, 
it's it's not just a a computer that can run math really fast. Like it's a thing that can actually it it is almost human. Like I get it. people will be like, it's not a human. It's just text prediction or whatever. But like it it has a lot of human characteristics. And so I think like there's a lot of things there where it could very much change the way that that you know we think about interacting with computers or what computers are sort of designed to do. In terms of BI, you know, I think there are there are, to me lots of ways it could change things. I don't think that way will be, and this was sort of the last thing I wrote about on the blog. I don't think that way will be ask it a question and it writes a SQL query for you. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons why that's that exact thing is hard. I think you may be able to ask it a question and you'll get an answer, but I think that it won't be just like text to SQL bot, um, despite that being kind of a popular thing to build. I think instead it'll be the kind of thing where like people figure out entire new paradigms for how do we interact with data? How do we ask questions? How do we solve problems of which LLMs are a part of that problem um, and, and figure out some interesting new stuff there. But I, what that exactly looks like, I think we're all kind of still figuring out. Yeah. I mean, you, you think about the effort we go to now to create these very elaborate, um, I suppose, ELT routines and semantic models, and writing SQL in a certain way with a certain dialect and, and, and so on. You can imagine, I think maybe there's an idea that you just have a lump of data and you just point the LLM at it and ask it questions. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why that's that's a very compelling idea, but it's also practically a lot of reasons why that couldn't happen tomorrow. I mean, what do you think on that as a, as a sort of an idea? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I, I think that, that it, it sounds very feasible. And when you do, you build little demo bots of like, look, here's some sample data and I can ask it a question and oh my God, it can answer them. And this is the future of analytics is me just asking questions. And I don't think that's quite right. Like, I think it's, it's a much harder problem to do that in the real world when, when you have a schema that is 5,000 Salesforce tables and they're all named crazy, funky things. And your definition of ARR has all these weird edge cases that the thing does not know about unless you teach it. Like, and again, this is one of the reasons why, why the thought spot conversations were compelling to me and why we were willing to, to say, Hey, yeah, this is a thing that makes a lot of sense is their approach to integrating AI into BI is LLMs are a piece of the puzzle that can make BI better, but you can't, you still need a lot of the things that BI does really well. Like LLMs don't really work on just raw writing raw SQL on top of tables. You need a model for them. You need ways to explore it visually. You need the kind of governance that you get out of traditional BI tools that, that LLMs can't really shortcut that. They can shortcut like the drag and drop user interface, but they can't shortcut modeling the data, trying to explain to the machine what ARR means. Like you have to encode that somewhere. And so while those things may also be like evolve with LLMs as, as part of the process, I think fundamentally like the way that BI works is still going to need a lot of the elements of BI. And so it it's not so simple as just like, oh, we have a bot that we prompt engineer into writing SQL queries. You still got to build all these kind of core elements to, to BI. And so to get back to the point I was making earlier about like every tool eventually realizes they're a BI tool. I think a lot of these LLM bots that write SQL will suddenly realize, oh, we got to build some charting. Oh, we got to build dashboards. Oh, we got to build like scheduling. We got to build governance. We got to build access controls. Um, those are all the things that make a BI tool a BI tool. And again, I think, you know, one of the reasons I'm optimistic about the ThoughtSpot acquisition is that's what they have. And they've thought about integrating LLMs into that instead of kind of trying to tack BI on, onto a chatbot. Okay. So I suppose final question for me really is, is do, do you think then that whilst LLMs and AI might not be the thing that replaces BI tools, that could in fact make the role of an analyst engineer maybe obsolete or certainly the kind of the... the the very technical and the specific role of an of a of an engineer is there a chance that, that could be replaced by LLMs? Really, you know, almost to the point where it becomes forgotten about in the same way that maybe a map reduce engineer would be forgotten about now. Uh, maybe, like, or, or alternatively, do you think analytics engineers will be around to stay, or it's just a phase we're going through? I do, I do think they'll be around. I don't know that they will quite have the same hype. Obviously, that we've they've sort of been built up over the last few years. Um, but I, the, the role to me is still there's and, and LLMs could actually even make this more important is you need some way to express basically like someone who is expressing business logic into data that is, that is encoding all of these things of what like 
English terms mean? How do I encode that into data structures that that aren't at all sort of fit for answering those questions? I think that is very much a real problem that will persist. Do LLMs make that obsolete? Probably not. Do they make it where like analytics engineers might express that logic and an LLM writes the the kind of semantic model that then translates that into something that is working against the data? Maybe I could see that, but I still think there is like a skill in the kind of data modeling element that, that doesn't make the role go away. Um, but certainly it could be, in the same way, all these things could be transformed by LLMs. It certainly to me could be transformed in some way that is, that is sort of hard to predict. Um, but it's it's hard for me to imagine like a business user just being like, like th- that's what's hard is if you are a business user that doesn't understand or isn't familiar with the weird schemas in Salesforce and Marketo, it's very hard for you to tell it exactly what to do and to make sure that it's right. Like you just don't have that access to that domain. And I don't know that LLMs are, are particularly close to to making the actual encoding of that okay okay we're almost out of time now so just to round things off really ben i mean it's been fantastic speaking to you and we could probably speak for hours but i'm conscious you've probably got things to do and and so on um but but how do people find out more about about mode and the acquisition that you're going through now with 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 uh sorry with uh with thought spots um so uh i mean the for for mode and thought spot there i you know we're in the process of of doing kind of the, the final close of the deal. Once that happens, I'm sure there will be uh, various things that go out about it. Um, you know, certainly if, if you want to check out Mode or check out ThoughtSpot uh, on both sides of that, the, the teams are now, you know, working together to, to one, uh, think about what the kind of combined vision of this looks like. We'll have a lot more to say about that kind of in the coming weeks and months. Um, and, and as well as if you're a ThoughtSpot customer and want to see Mode or Mode customer yeah. want to see ThoughtSpot, like we, we certainly see this as being something where, our view is that that the combined experience of these two products can be something that's really great, um, but we want to make sure we're we're also protecting the experiences that people bought on on either side. Yeah. That like the way this doesn't work is if we say, ah, at mode, you have to now do things totally differently. Like we recognize that people bought mode for mode and thought spot for thought spot. We want to we want to make this very much an additive thing where where those experiences don't go away. So um, you know, I, feel free to reach out to to anybody at either of those places. Um, you know, you can go to the website, you can email me, and I'm happy to put you in touch. Um, I also, for my stuff, uh, it's it's mostly on Substack, which is just ben.substack.com. Fantastic. And when, when will you be at another conference then? Will you be at the uh, Coalesce conference, for example? I will. Um, I will be at the, the DBT's conference in San Diego. Um, and I may be at a conference in London in September. There's, I think, Big Data London or London Big Data, I think, in the middle of September that I may be at. Um, the Coalesce, uh, DBT's Coalesce is, is the next one that I know for sure that I will be at though in, in San Diego now. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, Ben, thank you very much for coming on the show and it's been great speaking to you and uh, look forward to hearing more about uh, Mode and um, ThoughtSpot in the future. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me and yeah, there'll be, be lots more news on that front shortly.